This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Gospel Athlete, a study in gutsy, determined spiritual obedience. Uh, when, when my mom growing up would ask me to do something, uh, she'd, Eric, I need you to turn off the Atari. And I'm in the middle of playing a game, and I'm doing really good. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so then she comes back five minutes later, Eric, I thought I told you to turn off the Atari. Yeah, yeah, I just need to finish up this game. Eric, we have dinner on the table. I need you to come right now. And then she comes back five minutes later, and I'm still playing. And then she goes, Eric, I'm going to count to three. One of the worst parenting techniques you could ever use is counting to three. Because what it does is it causes a child to think that they're being obedient. One, two, when does a child obey when you count to three? On three. But don't call that obedience. You see, that's a child exerting their own will, doing what they want to do in their timing. And the only reason they actually did turn off the Atari is because there was a consequence waiting for them. It wasn't actually a willful obedience. And so one of the things that I've noticed in us as modern Christians is we have a tendency to wait for God to count to three. So when we deal with a message, like especially the last five weeks, the messages that have been weighing on us and pressing into us, are you waiting for God to count to three before you actually put them into practice? See, some of us, if we were just to query and have a quick pop quiz on our soul, it's like, so, what are you doing with this truth? It's like, well, God hasn't counted to three yet. You see, we are inclined as a Christian culture in America to not be instant in our obedience, but to be delayed and to exert that which is comfortable for us. Until I feel comfortable, I will not move forward. As a result, you will never move forward because spiritual obedience is not comfortable. Could you imagine going to the gym and saying, when the weights feel comfortable, then I'll press. Weights do not feel comfortable. Exercise is not by nature comfortable. However, those of you that are athletes actually find pleasure in that exercise. It's a really strange thing, but when you're first getting in shape, remember those first few days, you go to the gym, you're just exhausted, your blood sugar's all over the place, you're faint, you know, it's like, this is miserable. Lactic acid is pumped into your, your body. The next day, you're sore all over, and you're like, this stinks, And then the guy next to you who trains every day is like, yeah, isn't this great? That's the difference between a Christian who is exercising regularly and a Christian who isn't. If you do not exercise truth regularly, it actually is painful. It is difficult, and your body is grumpy, or you should say your soul is grumpy the entire time. And so what we're dealing with is gutsy, determined spiritual obedience. God says, go. We say, yes, sir. We start moving. However, many of us are in the stage where we're not used to doing that, and as a result, we're pausing because we're like, well, God, I'm not exactly sure that I'm ready for this. And so we hesitate, and we end up doing nothing. And so what I want to press through today is I want us to push. 
For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So we see this contrast of exercising. You have bodily exercise, and then you have something known as godliness, which we could call an exercise. It's the exercise of the life of God within the human life, within the human body. And so therefore, the the contrast that Paul is giving is he's saying, look, bodily exercise is actually healthy. It's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. It profits, but just a little. See, it profits one corner of your life, whereas godliness profits the entirety of your life. And so as a result, exercise is important, but let's make sure we're exercising God's way. Exercise. It's actually a good word. I, I really like it. However, most of us, when we hear the word, immediately translate that into physical exercise, which I'm going to leverage in this message, but not necessarily where I want you to end up. I don't want you to just think, yeah, I really need to get back into the gym. I just need to sign up for that gym membership again. I need to do it this time. It's sort of like the New Year's resolution. I'm not looking for you to just sign up at a gym or start running around the block, you know, once a day type of a thing. Now, I'm not against that. And that could be part of what God wants to work in you because you got a little donut ring around the middle and you need to start working it off. I'm not against that. However, that's not the point of this message. We're talking about the donut ring around your soul. So what is exercise? Listen to this. Vigorously doing that which is uncomfortable. Exercise is literally going straight into the domain of the uncomfortable and beginning to work. It is vigorously doing that which is uncomfortable. You vigorously do that which is uncomfortable, not passively like, ah, if, you're, if you come to like a barbell and it's laying on your chest and you're flat on your back, you're supposed to press it, right? The bench press. And you don't vigorously engage that weight, what's going to happen? It's not moving. And you go, this is just miserable. Who stuck this thing on my chest? You complain the whole time. Meanwhile, it crushes your chest. You're miserable. Everyone in the room is miserable. The paramedics come. The whole thing is a disaster. However, when you take that thing that is uncomfortable and you vigorously engage it and you press against it, you have yourself something known as exercise. Zealously eliminating that which hinders forward progression. Is there something in your life that is hindering forward progression? You see, I'm wanting to get healthy. And so as a result, I realize that smoking those cigarettes is actually causing a problem. Yeah, eating those donuts is causing a problem. Sorry, that was for Philip. Uh, Philip's all healthy. That's what's funny. He's this great athlete, but we found out this week he likes donuts. It's his one weakness. But eating those donuts is hindering you, so as a result, you zealously eliminate that which hinders forward progression. If that's going to hinder, it's out. It has nothing to do with if it's an, a moral issue. It has to do with the fact that it's hindering you from what you know is the end game. If that's getting in the way, it's a weight that's besetting me, throw it off. That's exercise diligently lifting that which is heavy. You diligently lift it. If you keep lifting that which is heavy, what happens to your muscle? (laughs) It gets bigger. It gets stronger. It tones. Continually entering the theater of pain with intentionality and enthusiasm. I mean, how ridiculous is it? Some of us that have spent our life, because I grew up an athlete, and you think about it, I'm showing up at soccer practice two-a-days in college, and we have hills we have the, the, you know, the hill of hell, basically, is what it was. I mean, it's sand on a straight-up hill, and we need to run this thing like 20 times? I mean, I literally died. 
I couldn't even get out of the bed the next morning. I literally crumpled to the floor. And I'm thinking, who in the right mind would do this? However, guess what I do? I get out of the bed, and I go straight back, and I'm staring at this hill again. What am I doing? I signed up for this? I'm actually choosing to do this? Yes, it's called exercise. And the more I, I keep staring at that hill and I keep going after it, you know what we have in athletics is we have a coach. Do it, Looney! Do it, otherwise you're doing 10 more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Getting out of bed when, you're, when you determined to get out of bed, that's exercise. You told yourself last night when you were going to get out of bed this morning. Did you exercise when you woke up? Did you say, absolutely, this is when I'm getting up, and you got out? Or did you come up with an excuse? It's amazing how many excuses pop into our heads in the early morning hours. You thought you were groggy, but you're thinking very clearly. (laughs) Constantly pursuing greater strength, greater endurance, and greater excellence. It's a constant pursuit of something more. It's a constant pursuit of increase. This is exercise. Bodily exercise has some value. It it profits you. It really does. But godliness, this profits you in every arena of your life. Shouting to your soul to keep going, keep moving, keep pushing, and keep standing even when the strength is gone. This is how it works. If you're an athlete, you understand these things, especially if you trained at any level of excellence. If you don't understand how to do this with the body, you're not going to be at any high level of output in your life, athletically. Spiritually, we look at this and we're like, whoa, whoa, don't apply that spiritually. If you apply that spiritually, we call that legalism around here. Yeah, and you're living a fruitless, dead Christian life with that stinking attitude. Either we start applying the grace of God with diligence in our everyday life, or... We sit around with donut rings in our soul. And we're so slobbish and lethargic that we can't move. And when the sermon comes and says, get out of bed, we can't even do anything but roll over and fall back asleep. What's happened to us as a church? We have lost our athleticism. Exercise in godliness. And so instead of just thinking of exercising the body, I want us to think about this idea of godliness. So I'm going to just briefly introduce you to godliness. Godliness, in a very simple way, is God behavior, okay? And by by the way, I don't know about you, but I can't produce God behavior. I can dig in my pockets and go, do I have some God behavior down here? I don't have God behavior in Eric Ludi, but I do have God behavior, but it's not mine, it's his. You see, his behavior is bequeathed to me by the power of the Holy Spirit, which dwells in me, and as I yield to it, then my life can actually show his behavior, Godliness, the way God would think, the way God would act, the way God would speak, the way God would handle the different situations. It's an evidence of the divine nature in my life here on earth. So the demonstration of God's nature in and through the Christian life. So in the message, The Power to Do It, I introduced the idea of the work glove. The work glove being that which is designed to perfectly rest upon the invisible hand. God is invisible. I know that sounds strange, but God is actually invisible. The Bible actually says that over and over again, even though you read the Bible, like, I could have sworn we saw him in there. You see, what you're seeing is you're seeing a visible representation of that which is invisible. Something has revealed him, and it's always revealed through a body. So when Jesus came, he revealed that which is invisible through a body. 
So what we have is the work glove is like a body. It's us. And it is meant and it's designed to perfectly fit upon the five fingers of the hand of God. And so when it rests upon that hand and it abides upon that hand, then it can actually move in agreement with that hand. If the hand points, what does the glove do? It points. If the hand waves, what does the glove do? It waves. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And that's godliness. So godliness, and Paul calls it the mystery of godliness. It's how does our life, which is so opposite of God, actually declare God? It must yield to God and allow God to come in. The hand must come into the glove. And when it does, when the glove moves, it shows what the hand is doing. This is the life of Jesus in a nutshell. He was the perfect work glove. He rested upon the Father, and he says, what I do is what the Father is doing. The works I do are what the works the Father is doing. The words I speak are the words the Father is speaking. How about you? You see, this is a life that we must exercise. So demonstrating the action and strength of the one who can do the work. You see, a work glove in and of itself can't do anything. Have you, could you imagine a work glove if you're like, come on, pick up the box. And the work glove's sitting there staring at the box going, I, I really am trying. A work glove in and of itself is nothing but flop. It can't do anything. It has no power in and of itself. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Without me, you can do nothing. You see, without the hand dwelling inside of us, we can actually do nothing of spiritual value. We cannot exercise godliness. You can exercise your body, yeah, but you can't exercise godliness. And as a result, yeah, your body can be healthy and sure you might live an extra couple years on life, but you still go to hell. However, exercising godliness benefits you in every aspect of your existence. This is what we're supposed to exercise. So how do we exercise it? Well, is the hand inside of you? Have you allowed the hand to come in and animate that work glove known as you so that you can actually begin to do that which the hand is desiring to do in this world? The 4.30 a.m. test. Now, some of you might be just doing great at 4.30 in the morning. And, you know, that's just your time because you probably get up at 2.30 and you're like, 4.30, you're just ready and raring to tackle the world. For me, there's something about the time of 4.30. God's always known it. You know, it's just sort of like, Eric, what do you think about 4.30? And I'm like, let's not talk about 4.30. See, I love to get up early, but even when I would get up early, I used to get up at 4.41 for years of my life. It was always after 4.30. There's something about 4.30 that just bothers me. It's just right at that cusp, uh, you know, where it's just not right. It's just not a healthy time. Uh, and you, you, if you haven't gotten past 4.30, you really haven't gotten enough sleep. And so psychologically, you're just extra tired the next day. And so we can call this the 4.30 test. God, before Ellerslie started, he's brought me on this test multiple times. The months, it was actually the months before Avonlea's birth and the months before Ellerslie started, I had the 4.30 test. And this is what it was. And I, to, add, to even to clarify to you how I got to this point in discussions with God, I'm not exactly sure, but this is sort of how it worked. Uh, see, my body wakes up right around 5, more naturally. Not completely naturally. Even at 5, it's still a little groggy, okay? I'm not, uh, don't, don't think higher thoughts of Eric Ludy than you should. 4.30, though, is just pure discomfort for me. And so what I basically said is, God, I'm not going to set my alarm. But if you wake me up and the clock says 4.30 or later, I get up. Just, you should try this. You will suddenly recognize the realities of the supernatural realm. I'm dead serious. It is the most bizarre thing. However, if the clock says 429, then I can go back to sleep. 
So here's how it works. Even if it says 429 and it turns to 430, I saw 429 first. That is the sign from God that I can go back to sleep. So I tell you what, the first morning, I, I open my eyes just sort of like, huh, what? I look over, 4.30. What? And so I'm like, okay, I know the deal we have, God. And I get out of bed, and my prayers in that time were so utterly pitiful. I don't even know how to say it. I don't want to compliment it at all. I know you're impressed with me that I got up at 4.30, but my prayers would not have impressed anyone. I don't even know that I got an intelligible word out for the first half hour while my body is waiting for normal wake-up times. So it's like... <laughs> I'm walking around. I'm trying to pray. It's completely ridiculous. You know, if you would look close, I probably had drool coming down the side of my face. However, some of the most important times in my life have come out of my 430 times. In fact, I would say one thing I've learned in heeding God is that the athlete is not born in that which is comfortable and natural. It's born in the fires of difficulty. It's born, in my case, at 430 in the morning. 430 in the morning is a test point for me where God is saying, get up, exercise. God, but I just don't feel very strong right now. Strength isn't you, Eric. It's me. And by you submitting to me, even in weakness, I will pour through you. I have found the greatest strength in my life when I have yielded to those uncomfortable moments and allowed them to even increase in my life. And so for, for years of my life, different seasons where I go through the 430 test, I'm not going to, you know, you could, you could say, why do you ever stop the 430 test, Eric? That's, you know, I go on trips or I, you know, have a trip internationally, 430 changes all over the place. And so sometimes that can throw off my 430 routine. However, even as I'm giving this message, yes, I'm saying to God, I'm willing to go back to the 430 thing. However, I don't do it as a ritual or a law. I do it as a relational thing between me and God to say, God, I'm ready. And if this is going to help sharpen me, hey, I'm in. It's the way I treat fasting too. I don't just say, oh, I have to fast to be right with God. I say, God, if there's anything I need to do to take a step forward into that realm of uncomfortable, to say, I'm dependent upon you, my life is merely a flow-through vessel for you, you do it. So 4.30 a.m. test is the reminder of soul grit. To get out of bed for me at 4.30 in the morning, just obediently, when that clock turns, I mean, literally, I'd say nine out of every 10 mornings when I go through this, it's literally 4.30 or 4.31 when I wake up. And then I start to panic because now my body's getting used to waking up at 4.30, 4.31, and it's uncomfortable. It's like my body's just going to go boom. And once I open my eyes, by the way, if I even have my eyes closed, here's the rules. If my eyes are closed but I wake up, I know when I'm awake. I need to open my eyes and look at the clock. That's part of the deal, okay? And there's nothing quite like it when I open. I, I'm like, okay, no, I'm still asleep. God, no, I know I'm awake. Great. Oh! <laughs> Oh, it's happened so many times. It's a great sense of humor. God is hilarious. He really is. I can just see him. He's standing up my bed going, let's go, buddy. Let's get up. Let's work out. And I'm like, oh, Lord, God, I am just not moving right. My brain is so foggy. My tongue just is not ready to pray. The two. So over these past five weeks previous to this, we've gone through the two. We've basically been comparing the true church to the counterfeit church. Over and over and over again, we've walked through the twos. And so in every time period in history, there's always a true church and there's a counterfeit church. And so we've talked about the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. They look similar. The the sheep and the goats both go, and the wheat and the tares grow up and they look identical. 
but one produces fruit and one doesn't. You see, the sheep produce fruits, not in the little sheep category necessarily, but they are doing the work of Jesus to the hungry, to the, to the naked, to the imprisoned. They are doing something, whereas the goats do nothing. That is how God separates them at the judgment day. The wheat and the tares, the wheat produces something, grain, but the tares have nothing to give. They have nothing to show for their life. Though they grew up in the same field, may we be sheep and wheat. That is what the commission to our church has been. Let us not excuse ourselves and say, well, I'm amongst the wheat or I'm around sheep. We must be sheep. There's evidence of sheep. There's evidence of real wheat. We must allow God to prove that we have that evidence in our life. The church that exercises and the one that doesn't. So we're talking about twos again. There's a church that exercises and there's a church that doesn't. Two. That's the sheep and the goats. One exercises the life of Jesus and as a result, they change the world around them. One doesn't. And as a result, when the world around them is in need of Jesus, they don't give Jesus. So the church that exercises, that's church one. Church two, the church that sleeps through its alarm clock. You see, God is ready to discipline us and to move us forward and exercise. Now, I'm not just saying that 4.30 in the morning, because some of you are like, I really don't like this message. It's just the 4.30 in the morning, Eric. Well, I'm not trying to put my conscience or my particular fun stuff with God on you. At the same time, I want to use that as a picture, that there is something needed. It's in the realm of discomfort. Are you willing to go into that realm of discomfort and say, yes, God, I'm ready for you to train me? To go to the gym, have you ever had one of those guys that's really in shape? And he's like, yeah, let's go. why don't you go to the gym with me? Like, I don't want to go to the gym with you. You're going to make me look bad. And you also know he's going to go, come on, you can push more than that. And you're like, yeah, I don't want to push more than that. Well, that's precisely what we were dealing with. Are you willing to have the Holy Spirit take you to the gym? Are you willing to get out of your comfort zone because he's going to wake you up at 4.30? That's the concept. He's going to say, hey, buddy, out of bed. Whoa, well, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. Are you sure you didn't? Aren't you a Christian? You see, a Christian is coming under the coachship of the Holy Spirit, under the Word of God. And when the Word of God speaks, we say, sir, yes, sir. So there's an alarm clock going off in our soul. We could call it five previous sermons. And it's going, eh, eh, eh. Are you, do you keep pushing snooze on that thing? Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that, God. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's an excellent thought, snooze. Or are you getting out of bed and saying, all right, let's do it. Introducing the sluggard. You ever heard of him in scripture? He hangs out in the Proverbs, by the way. Uh, the word is etzel in the Hebrew, and so it's translated sluggard and sloth, two wonderful sounding terms. And so introducing the sluggard. He, he's not a, a positive character, so God doesn't brag about the sluggard. Let's just put it that way. The sluggard, one unwilling to do that which is uncomfortable. So I want you to evaluate your soul, even as you're interacting with this. Some of you are a little disappointed that you came to church today. And you're thinking, boy, did I pick the wrong sermon. This is exactly what I didn't want to hear. And yet, that's the whole point of the sermon. If you are unwilling to do that which is uncomfortable. See, by the way, I'm the exact opposite of nature. I love to have someone poke at me. What I want, I've always wanted to go to boot camp. Not because I really want to go to boot camp. But because I want someone yelling at me. I'm always doing the yelling. I want someone yelling at me. I remember the first time I ever heard the gospel, uh, you know, the gospel video. 
just the audio of it, Steve Rosen forwarded it on to me, and I listened to it, and it was this guy shouting. And this guy that was so passionate, I was sobbing. It was like, I need that voice spoken to me. I wanted to go to boot camp just to have someone say, hey, Looney, give me a hundred. I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. I want someone pressing me and pushing me. The sluggard is one unwilling to do that which is uncomfortable. Desiring someone else to do the heavy lifting for his soul. Could, could someone else deal with that? I mean, we're Americans. We know how to hire other people to do our dirty work for us. Yeah, uh, I just met someone who cleans out septic tanks. Yeah, could that guy clean out my problems for me? I mean, he's used to that sort of thing. I, I don't want to uh, have to get dirty doing that. You know that each one of us needs to learn how to get uncomfortable and do the work of the kingdom of heaven. We do not sit by and let someone else do our Christianity for us. We do not live vicariously through other Christians. Even our children need to learn. One of the most important things is that they do not live their Christianity through their parents. They must live it. I don't want my children borrowing from my obedience. I want them to learn their own obedience to the Holy Spirit. So the soul of the sluggard desires. In other words, he's esteeming good things. Yeah, I'd like that. I'd like that. And has nothing. You see, the sluggard will never get those games. He will never get that outcome. He might esteem this grand Christian life. Oh, yeah, I'd like to live that way. But he's a sluggard. Therefore, he's unwilling to do anything uncomfortable. He'll never do it. But the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. By the way, that's a positive thing. For those of you that have been on diets for years, it sounds like the exact opposite of what you want. Uh, pick the sluggard. However, the sluggard is really fat. However, this is fatness of bones, of marrow. It's strength to your life. Okay, and that's the way of the righteous, or the ones that are diligent. The desire of the slothful kills him. You see, what is the desire of the slothful? To stay in bed, to avoid the exercise. You see, the slothful actually has in their mind that they will be healthier if they avoid discomfort. It actually is a reasoning point. It's like, oh yeah, I mean, why would I want to endure difficulty? That, that's, that sounds miserable. So actually, says the desire of the slothful kills him. For his hands refuse to labor. The Christian sluggard. Is it even possible to be a Christian and be a sluggard at the same time? That's a good question. You ever heard the ancient debate over the carnal Christian? Can you actually be ruled by the flesh and still be a man born of the Spirit? Huh? How does that work? Well, these are good questions to exercise and to uh, walk through the gymnastics of it in our soul. Can we truly be a sluggard? And a Christian isn't Christianity by its very nature, one given to the Holy Spirit for the exercise of godliness? Huh. So the Christian sluggard, one unwilling to get uncomfortable and therefore unable to yield a harvest of souls. So I, now you're going to say, oh, I know where he's going with this one. You see, I'm not just talking about you getting out of bed in the morning. I'm talking about you being the Christian Christian, one that's willing to engage this world with the truth of Jesus Christ. But that's uncomfortable. And as a result, do you know that a sluggardly Christian will never reproduce and will never bear the fruit of a new believer in their life? They will never be able to lead anyone to Christ because that's simply uncomfortable. And so as a result, the Christian sluggard is going to prove his sluggardliness by the fact that he will not produce fruit. And so the idea is he will not yield a harvest. You could say a harvest of the fruit of the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is the result of exercise. Also, he will not produce the fruit of the newness of life in others. He will not be able to see the conversion of souls around him. 
That's actually what it says in Proverbs. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall, be, shall he beg in harvest and have nothing. God, why do I not have souls? Why is it that no one is coming to Christ? Why is it that there's no harvest in my life? Well, it says that he will not plow by reason of the cold. It's cold out there. I, 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 I don't want to go out there. Well, if you don't go out there and you don't begin to plow, then you won't be able to plant, which means when the water comes and the rain comes, it won't be able to grow something up. And when the harvest season comes, you'll have nothing. You're going to have nothing, buddy. The sluggard has nothing. There's no fruit in his life. The Christian sluggard, the one with a thousand excuses. By the way, remember how I started this message and I said, I'm, I feel uncomfortably weak in giving this message. I feel like God, I'm the exact opposite of a sluggard in my mind. However, in going through this message, I feel like God has introduced me to the sluggardly dimensions of my soul. I'm not happy with that, and I'm not really that comfortable in telling you about it either. I would prefer you thinking of me as the diligent spiritual athlete at all times. How I, however, I have recognized that there are certain sluggardly attributes to my soul which has caused me to excuse myself out of certain things as opposed to diligently apply myself and walk straight into the weight room on that and say, God, do it. So all the excuses. After all, God doesn't want us to work. One of the most classic excuses of Christianity. Works. Oh, we don't do works uh, because we're not saved by works, and God doesn't like works. You see, we've gotten so messed up on the idea of works and not recognizing what he doesn't like is works of the flesh. So when you try and produce God results just as a glove hanging around on the ground, that is self-righteousness or what we could call self-gloveness. And it produces nothing of heavenly value. It does not reveal God at all, and God hates it. However, the work that God does approve is the one that rests upon the hand and obeys and agrees with the movements of the hand. That is spirit labor, spirit work, and that is what we must do. So it says in Proverbs, the slothful hides his hand in his bosom. It grieves him to bring it again to his mouth. I mean, it is so much work to actually lift this hand and bring it to the mouth. As a result, the sluggard and the sloth will not eat. Because, I mean, to lift that piece of bread all the way from the table to my mouth is just so much work. God doesn't want me to work. If he really wanted me to eat, he would just stick it in my mouth. No, God has built you for labor. But he's also... Very, very much wanting to clarify the sort of labor that brings life and the sort of labor that brings death. That way might prove to be dangerous. You start preaching the gospel, you start being a confessor in this generation, and you're right. It may prove to be dangerous. However, that idea of it may proving to be dangerous is actually the excuse that many of us use. People may not like me. I mean, I may, get in, I may lose my job. I mean, if I go over to the Middle East and actually do that, I'd lose my head. The slothful man saith, there is a lion without, I shall be slain in the streets. The slothful is always saying, whoa, there's a lion out there. I can't go outside. No, I can't go share the gospel in that street because there's a lion out there. Who says that? The slothful says that. The sluggard says that. I didn't get to bed until 2 a.m. last night. How many of us say that when the alarm clock goes off? Or you turn your head and it says 4.30. What's the first thought? Well, God, I would get up but I didn't get to bed till uh, really late last night. You see, we have our justifications. John Wesley called it keeping the hour. You do not negotiate terms. 
You have already made a commitment. If you know that there were five guys waiting for you at the gym in the morning or waiting outside your house to go for the run, and they're all dressed up, standing there in the street like this, do you know that it gets you up? (laughs) It's a strange compulsion to realize, I don't want to look bad. I don't want to look bad for them because they're going to know I'm sleeping in. However, when it's God that's waiting, we'll leave them hanging out on the street. Isn't that an amazing thought? That we will care more about what men think than our God with his exercise clothes on, the coach saying, let's go, buddy. You ready? Because I'm ready. As the door turns upon its hinges, so does the slothful upon his bed. It's 100 degrees out there, and I can't find my sunblock. Why aren't you out doing the work of the harvest? Why aren't you preparing your vineyard? Why, why isn't the slothful out there? Well, hey, it's, it's really hot out there. The sun, my mom always taught me that if I don't have sunblock, I shouldn't go out. We have our excuses. I went by the field of the slothful. This will be interesting. I wonder what this field is going to be like. And by the vineyard of the man void of understanding, and lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. How about you look upon it today, too? What God is saying is, you see that vineyard covered with thorns and weeds that is basically dead and producing no fruit, whose wall is broken down and has no protection? You see that? That's the vineyard of the slothful. That is how our soul looks when we're slothful. We're not producing fruit. This is the slothful talk. And I've got a sure-proof system. I know it's going to work this go-around. You see, I'm going to make this whole thing work. I'm going to produce fruit. I'm going to get this done. However, he's slothful. So he always has another idea of how he's going to save it. You know, it's it's like, I'm going to go down to the welfare office. They're going to give me a check. I'm going to make it through. See, he has ideas. He's thinking it through. He has his little uh, scams. Some of them are, you know, he's going to talk to this guy, maybe get a short-term loan, but he's going to make it through. The slothful doesn't want to work himself, but he wants to come up with ideas that will somehow help him keep making it. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. What's your excuse? So if we were to, it would be a really fascinating thing to write a book called Our Excuses. And we all just sort of get out all the excuses that go through our head. Whether or not you agreed with those excuses, they still were presented to you. It'd be fascinating just to look at them. We could all sort of stick them up on the screen and just laugh together. Because our excuses sound very intelligent when it's just inside of our mind, but they sound really dumb when we stick them up on a screen and everyone else is looking at them. It's like my dreams. I have these funny dreams that seem totally, you know, bona fide and real and, you know, credible. And then I share them with Leslie and she starts laughing. And then I think about it, it's like, I guess that is sort of funny. You see, it's an alternate reality and our excuses are not based on truth. Why aren't you yet living these past five sermons out? What's your excuse for that? Why haven't you yet confessed your sins? You've been convicted of your sins. Why haven't you yet confessed it? Well, that's complicated, Eric. Is it complicated? Or is it an issue of pride? Is it an issue of laziness? Do you remember when you committed to God? You said, God, I'm going to get right on that. I'm going to go straight to that person and confess. Why didn't you? Why haven't you changed your bad habits, driven a stake into the ground and said, God... I repent of this. Why why hasn't that happened? Why haven't you talked with your neighbor about Jesus? Remember how you said, yeah, I'm going to start talking to my neighbors about Jesus. Well, yeah, but I've been at a men's conference all weekend. Well, yeah, but we talked about this five weeks ago. 
In other words, why haven't we done these things? I recognize that life has other elements in it other than just sitting in a chair here and then going and doing that which we're called to do. But you need to recognize that that friction is there to hinder you and to stop you from forward movement. You recognize that you push against it. You don't just let it sit upon your chest and crush your rib cage. Why don't your fellow employees at your workplace know that you are a Christ follower? Remember we talked about that? I want everyone in your life to just know that you're a Christian. Whether or not you're even talking with them about Jesus yet, at least may they know where you stand on Jesus Christ. Don't let it be a hidden thing. It's like, oh, he's a Christian? After 10 years, like, really? He's a Christian? I had no idea. It should be obvious. Why are you still getting up too late in the morning in order to pray? Why are you still eating that, drinking that, watching that, or doing that one thing that God long ago convicted you about? I'm not even pointing at any specific, but when God convicts you of something, it's like, Eric, why are you doing that? Ooh, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. When God shows you a weight that is hindering you, you're an athlete. Get rid of it. If you recognize that your drug addiction is actually hindering you from competing at the Olympic level, get rid of the drugs. If something is hampering your ability to move forward with God, dump it overboard. Why haven't you done it yet? Why is it taking so long to take one single step forward? I want you to be convicted where conviction is necessary on this. I do not want you justifying creating some cloud of smoke about your soul. I want you to allow the heat-seeking conviction of the Holy Spirit to reach you and to say, why? Is it because... God isn't giving you the grace to do it? Is it because, oh, it's just not yet the right time to repent and to obey? Or is it the fact that you are wrong and you should be in the action mode of Christianity, exercising that which God is doing? The hedge of thorns. Don't blame your lack of progress on God. This is a very fascinating scripture in the Proverbs. The way of the slothful man, so the same, sluggard, slothful, same thing. The way of the slothful man is as a hedge of thorns. He actually can't ever get out and do what he desires to do. It's a hedge of thorns about him. That's his way. He can't move. But the way of the righteous is an open highway. I don't know about you, but I prefer the open highway out of those two options. So what is the difference between the righteous and the sluggard? The righteous is willing to do that which is uncomfortable. A sluggard is unwilling to even lift his hand to his mouth. He's grieved by such a thought. Tree living. What's your position? Now, this is going to sound a little strange because we're going to talk about some animals here. Technically, I don't know what an ant is, if it's an insect. What is an ant? To call it an animal sounds really odd. Uh, but whatever an ant is, that's what we're going to talk about, along with the sloth. Isn't that, wouldn't you hate to be the animal that's named the sloth? Poor guy. Uh, even for this illustration, it's pretty bad. You know that both of them, the two I'm going to talk about, because there's ants that don't live in trees, but there's an ant that lives in a tree, and there's a sloth that lives in a tree. And ironically, these animals are so opposite each other. So there's two. Two in the tree. The tree, we'll call it the cross. In other words, there's two that have come to the cross and that hang on it, that live in it. And yet these two are so vastly different. So I'd like to create the contrast between the two. The two. So we have talked about the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. Now we're going to talk about the ant and the sloth. By the way, the Proverbs talk about the ant and the sloth. The sloth. 
So I'm going to use sloth with a capital S here. I actually don't know if it'll come across in the, in the text. But as if it's the name. It's like we have a guy named the sloth. Okay, that's his name. The sluggish creature of the tree. This guy lives in the tree. He cherishes the tree. He eats off the tree. I mean, everything about his life is the tree. I mean, he's a, he's a Christian as far as we can tell. And yet what he produces as far as fruit of his life is just pathetic. So living high in jungle trees of Central and South America, the sloth is, well, <clears throat> a sloth. He hangs upside down in tree branches all day long, moving about by advancing one limb at a time in an agonizingly slow fashion. Unsociable and completely disinterested in other animals, even towards other sloths. Isn't that interesting? It's not just that he's, you know, he totally ignores all the other animals. He ignores other sloths. He doesn't even care about other sloths. The sloth is content and happy just sleeping his life away in his precious tree. Note, many sloths can sleep upwards of 15 to 20 hours out of every day. It's exciting to note that the sloth actually does come down from his tree about once each week. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Oh, good. Oh, you're coming down. Oh, good. Are you going to share the gospel? Are you going to bring others into the tree? Oh, but this is merely to either use the restroom or take a quick pleasure swim. Then it is back up the tree to hang. The sloth does have some good excuses, like we do. I mean, look at this excuse. You have to admit this is a really good excuse. For instance, his toenails are three to four inches in length, making it very uncomfortable, emphasize the word uncomfortable, for him to move on the ground. Oh, it's really hard to do this. I mean, to share about Jesus in the workplace. I mean, I have three to four inch long toenails. I mean, I, it's very uncomfortable for me to do these things. So instead of trying... He just avoids it at all costs. And for the odd circumstance when they must actually interact with the earthen realm, so when he actually ends up on the ground, there's two things that he'll do. They often just roll over on their backs and lie there. <laughs> How pathetic is that? Or the most venturous of sloths crawl about with self-pitying anguish. Oh, this is so hard. You see my three to four inch long toenails. Oh, and one piece of trivia on the sloth that Hudson and Dub, my 10-year-old and 6-year-old, are both sure to appreciate. The fastest recorded sloth was clocked doing 9 feet per hour. <laughs> Seat belts should be made mandatory for such high-speed activity. That's how we're progressing in our spiritual life. I say, uh-uh, unacceptable. See, there's two creatures in this tree in South America, one being the sloth, the other very different. The ant, the diligent creature of the tree. The tree in South America doesn't just have the sloth boorishly hanging from its limbs, but it also boasts the ant living within it, in its bark, its branches, and its leaves. The ant lives in a colony, a large group of interdependent ants, which consists of about 1,200 workers. So in just one tree, there's 1,200 workers inhabiting a single tree. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? However... The ants are spread out among the tree with typically 40 ants per, I call them small groups. Uh, they didn't use that term, but I used it just to try and uh, make a, a point here. And like all ants, the ant from the tree, ant capitalized, this is his name, his name is the ant, from the tree is an athlete of the greatest proportions. He is ever watchful, trained for the fight, wholly consumed with the health and protection of both the tree and his colony. You know that he will give his life to protect the tree? And he will give his life to protect the colony. He lives off of the tree. It's a symbiotic relationship. The tree is untouchable in the jungles. Why? 
because the ant protects it. The ant will lay down its life for it. However, it gets its life from the tree. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Isn't that extraordinary? So he wholly, he's wholly consumed with the health and protection of both the tree and his colony and bewildering in his strength. He can lift things far greater than his own body weight. Able to defeat the most formidable predators by working in perfect sync with his fellow colonists. God brags about the ant. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Go to the ant, sloth. Hey, you're both in the tree, but he actually says, go to the ant, sloth. Look at him. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. The, listen to this. The ant rests after work and is then replenished to go back out and work again. But the sloth rests before it ever starts the work and therefore never gets it done. The ant and the sloth both live in the big tree, but only one of them is living right. Summary, there is a church that exercises and a church that sleeps through its alarm clock. So hopefully you're catching my point here. This is the point that God has been pressing in me. I have been an athlete my entire life and even a spiritual athlete. I esteem spiritual athleticism at the highest levels. And yet what I'm recognizing is I can still call what I live and how I operate as spiritual athleticism. And God has begun to point out sluggishness, slothfulness in my life. So I don't even want to say that every single one of you is just functioning as a sloth hanging from a branch, moving at nine feet per, was it day? Or hour, it was per hour. Yeah, we'll give them a little credit. I'm not saying that that's you. However, there could be one sloth arm out this way. Meanwhile, your function is an ant over here. I want God to deal with the sloth portions of his church. Which one are we? Is someone else doing the heavy lifting for you? Are you doing the praying or is someone else in this church doing it for you? You know how easy it is for us to say, oh, I'm so glad there's a group praying. Is someone else doing the praying for you, or are you doing the praying? You see, we are all supposed to be doing the praying. Yes, there are going to be some in this church that are called specifically to going under the stage, stage and spending their time of ministry in prayer. But that doesn't mean they do the praying for you. You still must cultivate that prayer exercise in your life. Are you doing the evangelizing, or is someone else in the church doing it for you? I'm so glad those guys are going out there and sharing. That takes, you know, makes it so much easier on me. Because I just want to know as a church that we're sharing the gospel. And so as a result, you're pulling the sloth routine. Saying, oh yeah, I'm glad that someone else is out there doing it. Because I, mean, I just don't have time. Yeah, I'm glad you're called to that, buddy. Are you doing the serving or is someone else in this church doing it for you? Are you doing the studying or is someone else in this church doing it for you? This isn't supposed to be allocated to a few people in the church and the rest of us hang on tree limbs and move at nine feet per hour. We're all supposed to work as a colony. As, I don't want to answer, I don't even like ants. That's, that's what's sort of awkward about this illustration. Especially these ants that I studied in South America. You wouldn't believe what I left out. And yet they work together for the survival of that tree and that church. 
they understand why they're there, and they are vigorous to go straight into the uncomfortable. You should hear some of the stories. I'm just going to skip over. Maybe on Tuesday night you can ask me about the ant. Do we avoid exercise or embrace it? You see, this is where it started for me. I was getting up in the morning, and I realized I needed to do my push-ups. And I had a thought go through my head like, well, I don't really feel like doing the push-ups right now. Secondly, I don't have a lot of time. So I won't. And then I stopped. It was the thought. It was the excuse that was forming of why I would stop short of doing the most basic things. I mean, I'm not even exercising like I used to exercise. My exercise is pathetic compared to what it used to be. I used to exercise twice a day. I mean, I was training, 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 training physically. Now it's like if I get my push-ups in, you know, I'll get 50 to 100 push-ups in every morning. That's an accomplishment, okay? And, you know, now I'm actually wondering, should I do my push-ups? Do you see that? It's just sort of an erosion. And so what I did, God sort of stopped me on that, not because bodily exercise is the key to Eric Ludy's life, but he stopped me and sort of say, do you see that thought? That thought, if it continues, leads to a physical body that is extremely weak and unable to carry the loads of the life that you have. Do you have that same thought in your spiritual life at all? And so that began the search You see, when you go into the weight room, there is certain things in the weight room that we're not necessarily attracted to. The groan of exercise, the suffering of the weights, the sound of the alarm clock. I don't know how many of you, I mean, if I ever hear that sound anywhere, I want to like hammer it with my fist. I can't stand the sound of that alarm clock because it's somehow it's speaking to me, wake up, you sluggard. I don't like that. I don't like that sound. And so even when I was growing up, my, my, my technique was, and I would turn that off. I do not want to hear that sound. The muscle burn of obedience. When you exercise, there's burn. When you exercise, there's a form of suffering. Now, some of you are like, I'll take that suffering any day of the week. However, you need to realize it still is a form of suffering, but it's a good form. The pursuit of the second wind. When you're a runner... There is, you need to learn to break through until you get that second wind. Most of us stop before we get the second wind. And as a result, we're like, I don't know how these people do it. You see, that's the same with evangelism. You need a second wind. When you first start, it is really hard. And there's great resistance against your soul. And oftentimes, the very first people you're talking to are not the easiest ones to deal with. But what you need to pursue is break through that wall, break through that barrier, and keep speaking. You can't stop because of resistance. Same with running. The constant push of the coach. Come on, Looney! I want to see it better than that! Give me a hundred! You see, this is not something we're naturally attracted to in our flesh. However, spiritually speaking, this is what we've signed up for. You've entered into an army, a military regiment. You're in boot camp, being trained to go into a field of battle. Do you want to be ready for that field of battle, or do you want to be the sloth sleeping? On the transport, as it drops and the bullets start flying, you're like, huh, what's going on? If you're not ready for this battle, you're a dead man. This is our training ground. The two, exercising for God's glory and exercising for self's glory. So now you have the sloth, you have the ant, but now you have the exercisers. So all of us come into the room, we're like, yeah, yeah, let's go. All right, we're ready. So we're all the exercisers. Now you divide the exercisers into twos. 
There's those of us that are willing to exercise for God's glory. And there's others in here that are like, yeah, I uh, just want to tone the physique. I just want to look good in my bathing suit. You know, get sort of that shimmery, shimmery oil on me. And so I'll sort of flex like this. And the girls will go, oh! <laughs> Two different motivations, both exercising. And so the key for us as Christians is I don't want you just exercising. I want you exercising for God's glory. So the church that exercises for war, that's one option. You see, if you are going to boot camp, oftentimes you're not spending a lot of time standing in front of me or flexing. You're being worked over. You're getting a lot of push-ups. You're getting a lot of running with your pack on. There's not a lot of time to get a suntan. When you're in boot camp, you're exercising, but you're exercising for something specific. And then you have the church that exercises for flexing in the mirror. We sort of stand in front of each other and compare notes. It's like, what do you think of this? Here's my scripture that I memorized last night. And then someone's like, wow, you really have a good memory. And they say, yeah. And so, and here's what I also did. And so we're like exercising in front of the mirror. And so that we get the plaudits and the applause of those near and dear to us. And they're like, yeah, you're really doing well. We're not exercising for war. That's not getting us anywhere. So the dreaded I never knew you. I read this last night to the man. It's worth the repeat. Wherefore, by their fruits, says Jesus, you shall know them. How will you know them? By their fruits. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Did I not bench press that, God? And in thy name have cast out devils? Didn't I? I mean, I ran around the block five times. And in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. You were exercising, but not for godliness. You were exercising for your glory. I don't know you. Whoa. That's one of those scriptures that just causes us to tremble. And I want it to. I want it to cause me to tremble. I want it to cause you to tremble. I want God to get down to business. If you're a sloth, I want you to repent. If you are exercising for your glory, that you would be seen by men, that you would be known as some credible source and resource for biblical truth, you need to allow the Spirit of God to come in and correct this. We are exercised for godliness, for the glory of God alone, whether anyone on this earth ever pats us on the back, ever recognizes that we have big pectoral muscles. It makes no difference. So exercising godliness or exercising self Glovedness. So I was, uh, I took the kids to CrossFit class. We always go on Tuesdays and Thursdays to kids CrossFit. And it's actually really cute. Uh, my kids are most of the class. But so I sit there in the back. I usually am working on something in the back of my computer. And there's a poster on the wall off to the right. And so I looked at it and it has this guy going, ah! you know, one of those things that's supposed to charge you up. So if you come into CrossFit class, you look at the poster and go, ah! And so I looked over at that, and I read this little spiel thing. And I, I'm going to read it to you because it's just, <laughs> it's one of those things that any of you that are athletes understand the appeal. You understand the appeal because when you're working out and when you're training, you want someone to bark at you and you want someone to give you some motivational speech. That's what all these posters are for. Come on, you can do it. It's always you. You can do it. Yeah, so I'm just going to read this to you. This is imita- this, I'm going to call this imitation or counterfeit grit and determination, the poster in CrossFit class. 
Why do I succeed? I succeed because I'm willing to do the things you are not. By the way, this is not me speaking for any of you that are going to try and quote me. I heard this great quote from Eric Ludi. I succeed because I'm willing to do the things you are not. I will fight against the odds. I will sacrifice. I'm not shackled by fear, insecurity, or doubt. I feel those emotions, but I drink them in and then swallow them away to the blackness of hell. I'm motivated by accomplishment, not pride. Pride consumes the weak and kills their heart from within. If I fall, I get up. If I'm beaten, I will return. I will never stop getting better. I will never give up, ever. That is why I succeed. Isn't that interesting? It's like, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. (laughs) Who's doing the work? Is it you? Are you exercising? Are you digging in your pockets to pull off success? You see, this whole word of success almost just turns my stomach. Because success, you you could bench press 500 and go to hell. You could succeed in a gym and die in what matters. That's not success. We've been duped by such ridiculousness. And what's ironic is even as I was reading that, some of you were being stirred and wanted to push some weights. You see, there is something far greater. I don't you know what it is, if it's a poster or something that needs to hang in our soul, that needs to remind us of why we succeed. Or how about this, how we succeed. The glove is declaring, this is that poster, the glove is declaring that in and of itself it can produce a God result, but it can't. True grit, the bold confession of the gospel athlete. This is good. This is good. Uh, Do you know why I succeed? I succeed because Jesus succeeded. My life has been wholly captured by his, lost in his purposes, his power, and his love. I live for him alone to show others his righteousness and to introduce others to his grand gospel of grace. I am willing to do things others are not. I'll take the lowest place, be scorned, falsely accused, laughed at, mocked, beaten, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. I consider no sacrifice too great for my Savior's glory that others may witness his love. I am not shackled by fear, anxiety, and doubt, for my Redeemer lives, and the legal power of these dark shadows over my life has been annulled. I am free to now live a bewildering life, dare impossible feats, pursue heroic goals, overcome otherwise crippling obstacles, endure otherwise paralyzing setbacks, and face every single challenge ahead with rousing joy and a laugh of derision in my soul. I am motivated by the idea of knowing Him more and being a harbinger of His glory unto the lost and dying world. If I fall, I have Jesus to lift me up. If I'm duped by the devil, I have Jesus to correct me and build me so that it never happens twice. I will get stronger by the day, more refined, more pure, and more a revelation of the divine with every passing hour, for I have Jesus sanctifying, perfecting, and exercising me with his soul-searching love and holiness. I will reach the end of this race and break the tape with gusto, for he will not fail me nor forsake me. And the work that he has begun in me, he is certain to complete. Jesus did it at the cross, does it today in my life, and will continue to do it throughout all eternity. He is my salvation. That is my great confidence. For faithful is he who has called me, who also will do it. That is why I succeed. See, now you want to go and reach some lost souls. (laughs) Two kinds of exercise. For bodily exercise profits a little. 
But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So there's exercise that is good for all things, and there's exercise that is only good for the gym. Now, this is a strange reality that I came across. I used to lift a lot. That was a big deal. I know you look at me and you're like, yeah, right. And part of that, for me, that's been the narrow road for me to walk, to give up my athleticism and to give up even the appearance of it is part of the dying in my life. But I do have a past that was very engaged in this stuff. However, here's what I can say. In the gym, I could be impressive. But then I went to a work site, like a construction site, and I was dealing with this guy who was skin and bones. And there was a piece of plywood on the ground. And so he said, yeah, could you put that up on the roof? Sure. You know, hey, I'm built for such things. I mean, I train daily. I, I tried to engage this piece of plywood. It was the most humiliating thing I'd ever gone through in my life. I could not figure out how to lift this thing. And the guy's looking at me going, where's the plywood? I go, hey, would you... I think it takes two people for this. And he sort of huffs from the roof. And he goes, come on. Uh, And he steps down, picks this thing up, shoves it up there. He's skinny. No. You see, he had muscle. But it was muscle for actual real-world labor. Whereas I had muscle that was good for nothing but a gym. You take it outside of the gym, and it's actually good for nothing but flexing on a beach. Do you see that tricep? Well, what's the good of that? How many of us are training for a gym and for a beach? But when it comes to the plywood moments in our life, when someone says, shove that up on the roof, you're a Christian, aren't you? I mean, that's what we do. Yeah, yeah, I I got this. But we're not built for real-world muscle labor. We don't have it. So when it comes to the actual challenges of our life, we're thrown into a concentration camp. They say, yeah, aren't Christians supposed to rejoice right now? You're like, (laughs) I think that's true, but I sure don't feel it in me. Men's physique competition. I ran into two different men uh, this week that uh, were physique. I've never even run into one before. In in one week, I ran into two. Uh, And so just sort of the irony as I was talking to them, you know, just, you know, glancing at the issues of their soul and the gospel. I come to two different men that are literally physique trainers. Isn't that one of the most odd thing. And so they get together, you know, they, they work out, and two different guys too. They, they work out to literally train their body to look good. It has nothing to do with actually building muscle for battle, for real world help, to actually use that muscle to lift up something that, like a car that's pinning someone down. It has nothing to do with that. It's physique training. So, so you look good oiled down with the light shining on your pectorals. Good for you. But are you ready to really use that muscle to protect the weak, rescue the lost, and break the jaws of the evildoers and remove the prey from their teeth? You see, spiritual muscle is actually meant to be developed to be used, to be exercised in this world. So there's built for battle and there's built for show. There's built for saving others and there's built for impressing others. There's built for wrestling in the mud for lost souls, and there's built for a trophy case and the wonder of an onlooking church. Wow, what a specimen of Christianity. And actually what we need to start being impressed with are the Christians that aren't trying to look it for everyone else, but they are it. They are just doing it, and they're not bragging about it. They're just doing it. It's time to get out of the gym. 
and exercise that muscular strength where it really counts. So say you are exercising in a gym. Say you are facing the uncomfortable. Say you are getting up early. You're not shunning your alarm clock, but you're embracing it, and you're starting to exercise. That exercise is for one singular purpose, real-world application. You are not doing it just to get strong. You're doing it to give that strength to others. You have muscle, spend it. You have strength, give it. You have something to offer. Don't hold on to it and put it in your barn. Store it up for a, you know, some day of famine in the future. Give it now. Remember, you have what they need. As you exercise, it's like you are producing grain and they're hungry. You have that grain because you're really exercising godliness. You're wheat. And so as a result, you have something to give. You're a sheep. You have wool. You can take that wool and turn it into clothing. And you can actually practically begin to help those around you. Instead of just staring at their issue and going, oh, just be warm and well fed. You actually have something to give. It's what you are exercising and building within. The risk of the stronger. The man must do the asking. So I don't know how old-fashioned you are. But as the rumor has it, in old-fashioned America, the men were the initiators. You see, that actually comes from Christianity. I don't know if you know that. But Jesus is the one that initiates. It says, he called us. He chose us. The bridegroom is actually the one who does the initiation. It's the bride who is the receptor or the responder. Okay, so that's where it comes from. Jesus is the one that is the first sufferer. He's the one that takes the risk. He's the one that bore the penalty upon himself for his bride. And so this is the pattern, actually, of godly masculinity. So the risk of the stronger, the man must do the asking. I remember uh, growing up, and I didn't like this at all. And I grew up in the public school system. My background is, is a little odd, you know, when in an environment like this, because it's sort of hard to even give some of my illustrations because they just sound horrible. But to me, it was very normal, like going out on Halloween in, in my little alien outfit. Oh, that was totally normal. You know, and so now I'm even horrible. My kids would be like, what, Daddy? Uh, in other words, to me, I just didn't understand the framework of spiritual realities. I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. And so I would go to dances, you know, in junior high. And, you know, the, guy, the girls would be over there and the guys are over here. I tell you what, I've never felt so uncomfortable as walking across and being like, would you uh, dance with me? No. Ah! The reason the guy is the one to do the asking is because he is the one built as the stronger vessel to receive the rejection. The man is willing to say, I'll take the rejection. If anyone's going to experience rejection, it's not going to be the girl having to ask the guy and the guy turning her down. It's the guy taking that risk. Now, I'm setting you up for something because that's just the principle of strong manhood. However, we are the strong vessel in this world. The world, don't look at the world as the strong vessel. The world is weak, crumbling because of sin. We are the ones with the strength. We're the ones with the deposit, the earnest of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so just as the man must do the asking, I want you to realize that the church must be the one taking the risk for souls. See, a lot of us are waiting for the, the world to sort of get their act together and come to us and say, yeah, could you tell me the plan of salvation? Could you please help me in my need? You're the strong one. You go. And that's what I teach my kids. You know, oftentimes, my kids don't naturally engage, except for Lily. My kids don't naturally engage in social pursuit. 
So they're going to wait usually for someone else to stick out their hand and say, hi, who are you? And then they'll respond, and hopefully we're working on their response, and it's being more and more polished over time to be excellent and gentle and gracious and loving. However, one of the principles that I want to teach my kids is engagement. It's to always look in a crowd and recognize that probably everyone else in the room feels equally as uncomfortable. You show strength, and you go up to them and say, hi, my name is Hudson. What's your name? In other words, to initiate relationship as opposed to just respond. Watch you. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Take the initiative. You do it. Prove yourself a man. You know, this is actually spoken to the bride of Christ. Quit you like men, which is the equivalent in the Greek of saying, be a man. Be a man. Take the initiative. So the risk of the stronger, it's us. It's the church. The gospel athlete must do the asking. You're training. You're exercising. Now you do the asking. You take the risk. It's very likely you're going to be rejected. But guess what? You're built for this. Haven't you been exercising? It's okay. You're built for this. Don't wait for them to awaken. Don't wait for them to realize their need. You approach. You bring the truth to bear. You ask them the critical questions about their soul. You compel them to come into the kingdom. You take the lead. You take the initiative. You risk the rejection and the likely consequences of their denial. You know that. You count the cost before you even start sharing. They may reject you. There may even be consequences. If it's in the workplace, yeah, you could lose your job. You understand what you're dealing with. I'm not saying you're not wise as a serpent and innocent as doves in what you're doing. However, I'm going to tell you, you understand that there's risk in the engagement with a lost world with the truth of the gospel. You will, in fact, be persecuted. You know this, don't you? You smile back even when their answer is curt. You love back even when their actions are hurtful. You are the one built to carry the pain. If someone's going to carry the pain, it's not them. It's you. The pain of rejection, the pain of the sorrow for their soul, you're willing to carry it. Go. Do it. You were the strong one in this situation. What do you think Jesus is saying to his disciples turned apostles? Go. Go into all the world and preach. You're the strong ones. You're the one with the deposit of the Spirit. You're the one with the gospel of grace. Go! Do it! The decathlon of the heavenly Olympiad. So a decathlon is a 10 events. Uh, It's basically, we would say, the premier athlete. The greatest athlete in the Olympics is the one that wins the decathlon. At least this was the way it used to be. I don't know exactly. I haven't watched the Olympics in quite some time. And so it's the best, most well-rounded athlete in the world because they compete in 10 events that test them in every attribute of physical strength. So you have strength, you have endurance, you have uh, you know, things of agility and quickness, all sorts of things are, are mixed into it. So one of the things I've been pondering is as the gospel athlete that we would allow God to show us there could be certain events that you're really good at. And then eight of them that you're not. What I would like the Spirit of God to begin working in us as a church is to train us to be decathletes. To train us to be well-rounded gospel athletes without a sloth arm hanging out here. And a sloth furry leg hanging out here. But that we function with diligence in every area of our life, applying the grace of God to literally be honed and toned and made strong for the gospel purpose that we have. 
So here's the athlete of love. So some are great with love. Well, we're all supposed to be great with love. And so this is one of the events. So we'll call it the love competition. Test the wood grain of the soul of a Christian to determine if it truly has been altered by the Spirit of God and made new. Is this a new soul? Is it a new creature? And so love is a great test. Is it selfless in every situation? Is it humble and eager for the lowest seat in every circumstance? Is it always pointed in the direction of seeing others succeed even at the expense of its own strength? Is it relentless in its pursuit of the benefit of others? Is it willing to be mocked, ridiculed, beaten, and crucified that others might awaken and be freed from their shackles? Who's going to win that event? So this is a healthy form of competition. In other words, all of us are like, I want to win the love competition. All of us are seeking the lowest place. Could you imagine if we're arguing over who gets to go into the lowest place? Hey, that's mine! And we're like washing each other's feet and then someone else starts washing ours. We're like, oh no! <laughs> we're constantly seeking the low place. We are succeeding in the love competition. The athlete of faith. The faith competition tests the focus of the soul of the Christian to determine if it really has the word of God as, as its rock and strong tower. When the bomb blasts hit, does the Christian turn its eyes away from Christ even for a moment? When the fire starts, the storms rage, or the funds run dry, does the Christian stay true to God's promises, resolutely believing, or does he waver, stagger, and stumble? The athlete of attitude. The attitude competition tests the waters of the soul of the Christian to determine if they are living or stagnant. When the trials come, does the Christian turn to the crowd in thanksgiving? When dangers, difficulties, and disasters strike, does the Christian smile grow bigger, his song grow louder, and his joy grow larger? Could you imagine what this would look like in an Olympic event? crushing weights are falling on the athletes and they're leaping for joy, shouting loud. It's like, no, not loud enough. And it's like, he gets the bronze. And it's like, oh, and the guy that gets the gold. And what's he gonna look like? Grand piano landing on his head. Praise Jesus. How you doing? As the athlete of attitude. The athlete of prayer. The prayer competition tests the fervency levels of prayer to see if the Christian really is allowing the Holy Spirit to constantly pray through his life. Does he carry the ache of God for the lost? Does he carry the burden of God for the church? Is he grieved by the oppressions of this earth, the injustices and the effects of sin? And do these matters bring him to his knees and keep, them, keep him on his knees until the breaking of day? Is he wrestling, untiring, and importunate in his asking? How about the bold confession? This has to do with what we've been talking about the past five weeks. The bold confession competition tests the willingness and readiness of the Christian to speak to others about the state of their souls, to preach the gospel to them and compel them to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do they step forward and do it when opportunity arises? And do they actually obey when the Holy Spirit says, now? Are they leading souls into the kingdom? The athlete of the mind. The mind competition tests the stewardship of the Christian's thought life. Is it fixed on things above? Is it constantly searching out and meditating on the word of God in submission to the Holy Spirit's guidance? Is it being cultivated, organized, and built by heaven's truth? Is Jesus Christ its singular focus? The athlete of the tongue. The athlete of sleep the athlete of appetite, the athlete of patient endurance and soul composure. No matter what you face, you do not break. Your appetite does not control you. Sleep does not control you. You are not controlled by the lusts of the flesh. You are an athlete built for such a battle. You are the premier soldier on this earth. Aren't you? You see, you have the grace to become that, but you must exercise that grace. And to exercise that grace, you must choose to enter the realm of discomfort. You must move into the realm of uncomfortable aspects of life and say, God, refine me here because I'm very uncomfortable here. I want to feel completely at home at 4.30 in the morning. Technically, I want to feel at home all throughout the night with you gently nudging me and saying, Eric, I need a man to pray right now. And without hesitation, you know that I've had seasons in my life 
when I am perfectly ready all throughout the night to wake up to the Holy Spirit. And then the blubber ring returns. And then suddenly God wakes me up and I go, ah, God, I got it, really. And I'm gone. You see, the sharpness of soul is extremely important. And so as a result, if you begin to realize that that donut ring or that blubber ring is beginning to increase in your soul again, even though you've been in shape in the past, don't lean on past achievements. Don't look back to glory days of your athleticism. I want you to be an athlete today. And so if you need to repent of a donut ring today around your soul, you repent and you begin to step forward and take those micro steps forward of obedience and say, God, we're moving. We're moving right now. No more talking about it. It's time for decisive action. Exercise that soul. Can't you hear the coach? Come on, Looney. Exercise that soul. Seeking the lactic acid of spiritual repetition. You know what? If you just lift a weight once, you don't really get the lactic acid that floods in and starts burning the muscle. So what do you do? You lift it. The coach says, come on, Ludi. And you're like, I'm tired, coach. I'm tired. He says, come on, 10 more, 10 more. You're like, oh, and he's like, nine more. Like, nine more? There's no way I can do nine more. What are you looking to? Your pockets, Ludi? We got plenty in here. I got grace for you. Call upon it. Come on, Ludi. Come on, let it burn. No pain, no gain. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? Any of you that have hung out in a gym, this is just noise in the gym. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You know that when you exercise the repetition of obedience, the repetition of that which is uncomfortable, when you press through even when it's difficult, you get a burn in your muscle. You also get a burn in your soul. You know the word of God, both in text and person and action, was a fire. It's a fire, and what comes out are pure words. What comes out in our life is the pure word of God, Jesus. That's what comes out from this fire of repetition of the uncomfortable. No pain, no gain. Classic weightlifter's motto. You know what? It's true. You see, if you aren't willing to embrace the pain of that lactic acid flooding to your soul, as you exercise in those uncomfortable moments, as you come up to that person... You pause and you're thinking, I, I know I'm supposed to speak, but oh boy, this is awkward. And then especially when someone else comes up next to them, uh, you know, or you, and they're like there. If it was just you and them, it's one thing, but now you got this other hanger on over here. And you're like, Hi. yeah, so, so yeah, maybe we'll talk some other time. But to actually exercise in that situation, to press through. And when the coach is saying, come on, Looney, you don't just drop the weight. But you say, God, I need your grace right now. And you make the full turn of it. You see, this is what is required for us. Come on, push it, laugh at the burn, mock the pain. Greater is he that is in you than that obstacle you are currently pressing against. Faithful is he that has called you to lift that weight, who also will do it. Christianity. Christianity 101, unfortunately. Right when we think we're moving on, God takes us right back to the basics and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just hanging on to the tree like a sloth? Or are you living in the tree, finding your life from that tree, giving your life for that tree, giving your life to support the others that live in that tree, and laying down your life to see that others come to the tree? How you living? 
You're living as a sloth or the ant. Are you the first church or the second church? Are you the sheep or the goats? Are you the wheat or the tares? Are you producing fruit? Are you exercising godliness? Or are you just exercising the life that would maybe look good to others that esteem godliness? But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Wow. So are we people who know our God? Because we will display strength and take action. Am I good? That's really good. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.